The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Thursday, May 16th, 2019, from Slate, it's The Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. The vote of the Alabama Senate to illegalize all abortions was by a vote of 25 to 6. The political makeup of the Alabama Senate is 25 Republicans, 6 Democrats. Now, the vote of the Georgia Senate to ban all abortions after, in essence, six weeks was 34 to 20. The makeup of the Georgia Senate is 35 Republicans, 21 Democrats. We should also note that two senators did not vote. In Missouri, their very restrictive abortion law passed their Senate by a vote of 24 to 10. The Missouri Senate is 24 Republicans, 10 Democrats. So, in every one of these states, in the upper chamber of the three states voting for the most restrictive abortion laws, every single Republican voted for those abortion restrictions, and every Democrat voted against them. Two senators in Georgia didn't vote. This is what's called a perfect correlation between the party of the senator and the stance on abortion. The Republicans are against the right to abortion no matter what the Constitution says, and the Democrats are for a right to abortion. But much of the coverage and the emphasis has been on the gender of the legislators who voted for the ban. Now, on one level, this is useful information. It's good to know that of the 10 Democrats in the Missouri Senate, six are women and four are men. There is also only one female Republican senator in Missouri. Of the two, total two female senators in the state of Alabama, both are Democrats. And so it is true, as CNN reports, the nation's most restrictive abortion law. All those in favor, Republican men. And here you have Elizabeth Warren on social media. Republican men are on the march to overturn Roe versus Wade. That's not untrue, but Republican women are also on that march. And female governor of Alabama, Kay Ivey, signed the bill. It was sponsored in the House there by female legislator Terry Collins. Again, to state it again, there is a perfect correlation between Republicanism and anti-abortion sentiment in the Senates of these states. It is less correlative to gender. 45 Republican women voted for the abortion ban overall in the legislatures in the states we're talking about. One Republican female governor signed it. Now, it's true that two Republican women in the Georgia House of Representatives voted against the abortion ban, but those were the only two out of the 47 Republican women who voted. It is clear that it is Republicanism and not gender that dictates a person's stance on these bills. Republicans, not men, are the nexus of blame. Now, it is true that Republicans happen to be terrible at electing females to office. I guess Republicans would say they're not terrible at electing women to office. They're great at electing men. But it's a bit more likely that Republican-leaning women in Republican legislative districts in these states see men as capable leaders. And it's really, really, really likely that Republican men in these districts see women as inferior leaders. So you have a phenomenon of the men not just being elected to office in Republican districts in Missouri, Georgia, and Alabama, but the men also accurately representing the will of the women in their districts. I would guess that women voters in those three states 
with the abortion bans. Women voters who are represented by men in their Senate or their House of Representatives or their General Assembly in the case of Missouri, I would guess that the women may be more pro-choice than their male counterparts, but not by a lot because polling consistently shows there is only a tiny difference between men and women's opinions on this issue. Pew found that men and women express similar views on abortion. 60% of women say it should be legal in all or most cases, as do 57% of men. Now, from a rhetoric standpoint, what Elizabeth Warren is saying may be useful. It may be useful to argue that men are taking away your abortion rights. It is, on an emotional level, it is infuriating to see the screens filled with picture after picture of the men who voted to take away the reproductive rights of women. But to me, the infuriating thing is that the rights are being taken away. The infuriating thing isn't that it's men doing it. Because the men doing it are in fact representing women who are against abortion. So in America, by a significant margin, men favor a woman's right for an abortion. But in America, Republicans do not favor a woman's right to an abortion. It is Republicans who are restricting rights. It is Republicans who are violating the Constitution. It is Republicans who are voting for and effectuating illegal abortion bans, not men. On the show today, I spiel about Joe Biden's crazy dream of bipartisanship. Just how crazy is it? But first, Professor Jared Diamond is a noted polymath. He is out with a new book. It is called Upheaval. And appropriately, it left me shook. Upheaval is the new book by Jared Diamond, the Pulitzer Prize and MacArthur Genius Grant uh, winner, it's so more, I know those are accolades, but this book really proves what a thinker like Jared Diamond brings to the table, which is, I think, at the core of insight and genius. I've always thought that being truly intelligent is taking disparate strands, seeing the relations, analogizing, and synthesizing something new. And that's what Diamond does in his new book, Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis. Welcome to The Gist. Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to be with you. So the two strands boldly thinking are the geopolitical and the personal. Uh, you talk about personal crises and how these relate to national crises. I, I suppose my question is, which came first? Were you, were you thinking about personal crises and then it hit you? Oh my gosh, this is how nations are. Or were you thinking more about Finland and Chile and then said to yourself, wait a minute, there's a strong analogy between PTSD and therapy. There's something of both. Um, I had experienced these countries going back to 1959 in Germany, 1959 in Finland, and so on. Um, and I knew about the crises that they had experienced, but I was not thinking about structure of crises. And then in 1981, when Marie and I were married, Marie 
a clinical psychologist, my wife, spent a year doing training in a specialty called crisis therapy. That's what happens where you're hit with something that shakes you up and makes you realize that you're not operating well. Um, It's often the breakdown of a relationship, death of a loved one, setback to career or health. It's something that makes you realize you gotta change fast. And Marie and her fellow therapists each week would gather to discuss who was making progress and who in the worst cases was committing suicide. And it dawned on me that similar factors or things for which they could serve as metaphors also help understand the outcomes of national crises. Oh, okay. So suicide is interesting because on the personal level, that is a definitive conclusion to a person being in crises. But it doesn't necessarily map on to the national or international level. Let's take Finland. Finland's crisis was fascinating through no fault of its own. It was attacked by the Soviet Union and had massive amounts of resilience in the face of those attacks. And we could talk about them. Finland has thrived. It's there now. But what about its Baltic neighbors, Lithuania, Estonia, which were subsumed by the then Soviet Union? Would we say that those countries committed suicide? I wouldn't say that they committed suicide. I would say that they they made political choices that resulted in their loss of independence for several decades, whereas the Finns made a political choice, which was to fight, which preserved Finland's independence, even at the cost of 100,000 Finns in this small country getting killed and the largest child evacuation in history. Yeah, and it seems to me that of all the... Of all the countries you write about in your book, Finland is the one that's the most, broadly speaking, heroic. That's true. I find what happened in Finland so Mm gut-wrenching. To go through Finland's national cemetery and to see these circles and circles and circles of graves, the Finns realized that their survival was going to depend upon what they did vis-a-vis this neighbor with a population of 170 million. And so the Finns accepted compromises to their democracy that no powerful democracy that the United States, Britain, or Germany would never accept. For example, the Finns actually canceled a presidential election. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Because the Russians objected to one of the candidates whom they feared as being (laughs) anti-Soviet. The the United States would never cancel a presidential election. Maybe in slow motion, James Comey did, one could argue. There are differences. Yes, I know. The differences would with due respect. Um, <laughs> yes. To an American, that sounds extreme, but other countries have not been invaded and lost 100,000 people killed by a country 50 times larger. Enormous losses. I would also describe the Australian um, lesson as uh, one of success, coming out the other end and thriving. And I perhaps I, uh, many readers or listeners would not know, as I didn't, that Australia never really thought of itself as Australia per se. They really thought of themselves more as colonies. I mean, it was shocking to me to think that Australia would have this sense of colonial identity much more than they had continental or national identity, much more so even than the United States did or the, you know, 13 colonies did at the time, I think. It's stunning that when the British in the 1920s told their Commonwealth countries, Canada, South Africa, and so on, um, we've 
had the ambassadors for the whole Commonwealth until now. Now you can send out ambassadors. The Australian response was, we Australians don't need to send ambassadors to other countries countries because we are loyal British subjects and we're satisfied to have a British ambassador representing us. Well, that's all very well as long as Australians consider themselves just as displaced British people. But during World War II, the British failed to protect Australia from attack by Japan, After World War II, when Australia wanted immigrants, there were not enough immigrants from Britain. Australia looked elsewhere for immigrants. And Australia's trade patterns shifted. Instead of 30% of the trade being with Britain, only 4% of the trade was with Britain after a few decades. So today it seems necessary that Australia had to shift its identity. It's the opposite of Finland. Finland had a massive acute crisis the night of November 30, 1939, with a Soviet attack. Australia did not have an acute crisis. Instead, it was a slow development over decades after World War II that gradually resulted in Australia changing its self-image from an outpost of loyal British subjects to its own country. Is, is, does history have any lessons for a country changing its national identity, undergoing a change without a lot of sturm und drang. I ask because in America, the composition of our country is changing. We're trying to undergo this experiment where the majority ethnicity peacefully and functionally cedes power to an ethnicity or a conglomeration thereof that wasn't uh, in the majority. That's never happened as far as I know. And there's a lot of uh, scholarship about levels of immigration that cause tumult within communities. I'm wondering how inevitable it is. And since we're talking about, you know, going through a personal change and we could do that in a healthy way or an unhealthy way, if there are parallels and uh, historical examples of countries undergoing such a change uh, without huge amounts of upheaval. I like how you pose that with the terms um, Sturm und Drang. There were lots of cases of countries that have refused to shift their identity. For example, Britain today is kicking and screaming against remaining in the European Union, debating Brexit, although Britain's trade today is overwhelmingly with the European Union. To change one's national identity, I would say, is inevitably painful, or as you would say, it always involves Sturm und Drang. Yeah, so I wonder how harshly we should judge ourselves or the Brits should judge themselves now. I mean, let's not, you talk about this in the book, like some people think that the history of the Roman Empire had three big inflection points, and yet there's other scholarship that says a city undergoes huge technological changes every 12 years. I mean, there's legitimate ways to look at how to define when some upheaval happens. Noted. But maybe we're being too hard on ourselves. Maybe we're over-catastrophizing the moment. This was all inevitable, and we're muddling along as best we can. I think that this this moment really is a difficult moment for the United States. From my perspective, because I was born in 1937, it's tempting to say that the decade in which we're in now is the most difficult decade in our history. And it's true that when I think back to the 1950s, the Cold War, 1940s, World War II, 1960s, Cuban Missile Crisis, 1970s, Vietnam, every decade of my life has seemed like the most difficult decade in U.S. history. But even saying that, I would say that the current decade that we're in now is the most difficult decade in recent um, American history, because what's up for grabs now is whether the United States will continue to be a democracy or whether our 200 
25, 230-year experiment of democracy is going to get undermined within the next decade. Yeah, it would seem. I want to talk about Chile for a second. Um, It's in your book because that's one of those cases where one day, September 11th, 1973, in fact, a dictator uh, was installed, uh, Salvador Allende, the popularly elected but failing president killed himself and everything all changed. And and the confounding thing is that the uh, horrible, immoral, torturous reign of Pinochet was also a reign of, you know, guided by Milton Friedman in the Chicago School of Economics that was fairly successful on that level. Welcome to life on a planet Earth. It would be wonderful to live on a planet of the Andromeda Nebula where every president is either all good or all bad. I'm sorry to say that on planet Earth, it isn't that way, that even the most evil people may have some strands of good in them. In the case of Pinochet, who smashed world records for sadism and torture, Um, Unfortunately, for those who would like to see life as simple, Pinochet's economic policies got Chile out of the disastrous economic state that had been brought to by Allende. And the proof of the correctness of Pinochet's economic policies was that when the socialists came back into power after Pinochet was in fact voted out of power, the socialists had the chance to go back to socialist policies and instead the socialists not only adopted Pinochet's free market policies, they they carried them further to the extreme. That's tribute to Pinochet getting something right. And I hesitate to say Pinochet getting something right because he was such a vile person and his government was such a vile government in other respects that I hate to give him credit for anything. But alas, on our planet Earth, we have to recognize that that everything is a mixture of good and good and evil. And so what was the uh, the crisis or what was the, the parallel that is runs through your book? How does that map onto uh, the Chile situation? Well, if you want the most direct parallel, I produce my books by teaching them to UCLA, under, my UCLA undergraduates year after year to try out the material of my book. Uh-huh. To my UCLA undergraduates, and to me, the most upsetting of the chapters in my book, Upheaval, is that chapter about Chile because the parallel is so obvious. Chile is a democracy. It's the most long-standing democracy in Latin America. When I lived in Chile in 1967, my Chilean friends told me, we know how to govern ourselves. We are a democracy. But six years later, democracy had collapsed in Chile because of a breakdown of political compromise. In the United States today, it's obvious that political compromise has been declining in the last 20 years. In Chile, that ended in the end of democracy. Could it end in the United States with the end of democracy? If it does, it won't be by a military coup in the United States. The American army doesn't get involved in coups. Democracy, if it ends in the United States, will end differently. It'll end in the way that it's ending now. That's to say with restrictions on voter registration by local and state parties in power. A democracy is a country where you can vote and where the citizens are prevented from voting. It's no longer a democracy. Another interesting, it was noted, and I don't think it's a main thesis, but you looked at, there were upheavals all over the world in the uh, late 60s, and in the United States there were hippies, but in Germany there was 
biter mainhoff gang and some terrorism, political violence. And you went back and you pointed out that the uh, that the protesters of that era would have had parents who they blamed for supporting Hitler. And that, by your estimation, is one reason why maybe Italy and Germany and there was uh, there was more political violence, I think, per capita in Japan than, I don't know, compare it to the rest of the Japan. But there's a lot of rhetoric, especially with environmental protests, that I know you take the issue of the environment extremely seriously. It's one of your four, you know, existential issues. And most thinkers, I think, would agree. There's a lot of rhetoric that doesn't just say the last generation got it wrong, doesn't look on the flaws or mistakes charitably. They really, they really have extreme condemnation to the point where they say the last generation doomed us and it's up to us to save ourselves. Does that worry you that some of the activism, it's good to have an urgency when it comes to the environment, but does it worry you that it might veer into more of the Germany style protests than the, you know, 1968, seven summer of love type protests? No, it does not worry me. I would say that the, those protesters have gotten it right. Namely, that for the first time in world history, we have the potential for ruining the whole world. That's because of globalization. That's because of our increased power. Protesters in the past could complain that, that their parents were ruining the United States or ruining Germany, but not ruining the whole world. Young people are understandably angry that their parents are ruining the future for young people, a, a future that their own parents will not live to see. So I sympathize with the young protesters. So you've studied gallbladders and you've studied geography and you've studied everything in this book. Would you say, and I'm interviewing uh, David Epstein, who writes about specialists and generalists, and his thesis is that specialists are normally not the way to go. Ma, are you a one-man um, one proof that generalizing is the uh, proper path to take if you want to have uh, insights into the world? I would not draw that conclusion. For different people, different strategies work. Um, I have a friend at UCLA um, who studies the protein beta-galactosidase, and he has devoted his whole life since 1958 to studying beta-galactosidase. He's really good at studying beta-galactosidase. He's not made contributions in other areas, as far as I know. Okay, he's found a life strategy that works for him. For me, I'm not satisfied with studying beta-galactosidase. I want, I've wanted to study gallbladders. I still study New Guinea birds. Um, I still study geography and history. That's a strategy that works for me, but it doesn't necessarily work for everybody else. And this is why in his official bio, it says, Jared Diamond, a noted polymath, is professor of geography at the University of California, Los Angeles, and his latest book is Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Spiel. Joe Biden, Democratic frontrunner, is a man who knits together huge swaths of the Obama constituency and offers Democrats a hopeful alternative to the worst president of their lifetimes. 
My apologies to anyone who was around during the Warren G. Harding administration. But Joe Biden is also a gaffe machine eager to work with Republicans only because he fails to realize how often he's been hoodwinked by the recalcitrant GOP. Now, these concepts of Joe Biden both exist in force and are probed and advanced every day in coverage of the former vice president. When you think about it, these two things, that a man can represent a broad coalition, plus he can also be a shameful bipartisanship fetishist, they could both be true. In in a way, they're even complementary. You could say, you know what? Your average American actually likes the idea of bipartisanship and working together, but also your average American is naive about the obstreperousness of our current political realities. So maybe they do correlate a little bit. But in general, it is also the case that these competing ideas are not totally true. I do not know how broad an appeal Joe Biden has. It is quite possible his appeal could deflate like a puff pastry left out in the sun. And I do not think that Joe Biden has a dewy innocence about the deals he could make with a Republican Congress or a Senate led by Mitch McConnell, whose playbook Joe Biden has a very good knowledge of. Still, yesterday, in talking to voters in a New Hampshire coffee shop, one that only exists every four years to accommodate candidates visiting coffee shops. It's the Brigadoon of New Hampshire coffee shops. No, it's actually a real coffee shop. Joe Biden said this. I just think there is a way, and the, the thing will fundamentally change things, is with Donald Trump out of the White House. Not a joke. You will see an epiphany occur among many of my Republican friends. And it's already beginning this year in the House now. You've seen people that, in fact, have, were not willing to vote for any Democrat Democratic initiative, even if they agreed with it, because they didn't want to be the odd person out of it, wasn't going to pass. There's no sense in getting politically beaten for something that's not going to happen. People, people of New Hampshire coffee shops, can you pipe down Democratic frontrunner Joe Biden espousing some wishful thinking here? Well, that's at least how it was taken, wishful thinking. The word epiphany triggered something in abused leftists who cast serious doubts that the princelings of darkness in the Republican Party could come to the light as opposed to be incinerated by it. Let me quote a few. In Vox, Matt Iglesias writes, I have to say, I find the Republicans will have an epiphany theory of politics to be so egregiously wrong that I basically refuse to believe that it's something Joe Biden actually thinks. And Jamil Smith of Rolling Stone tweeted, this reads like he was asleep during the eight years of his vice presidency. Even on the right, Phil Klein of the Washington Examiner tweets, Joe Biden is living in fantasy land if he thinks Republicans will have a post-Trump bipartisan epiphany. Republicans can't have an epiphany. It's got to be two-way street. But then I saw a tweet by the estimable Alex Rorty of McClatchy, and he points out that Joe Biden's former boss made the same point. And there was a link to a 2012 article headline, Obama, Republican fever will break after the election. Remember, 2012. And here's how the story went. Republicans can stop worrying about voting him out of office. Quote, my expectation is that if we can break this fever, that we can invest in clean energy and energy efficiency, because that's not a bipartisan issue, Obama said, speaking in front of supporters in Minneapolis. Obama pointed to deficit reduction, a transportation bill, and immigration reform as initiatives that could well pass in November. Okay, I'm, I'm interested now. Let's go through those programs. So the first one he talked about was clean energy, 
and energy efficiency. President Obama praising bipartisanship. Don't hear that word a lot these days. This as he signed the Energy Efficiency Improvement Act of 2015, and it was sponsored by Ohio's Republican Senator Rob Portman, along with a New Hampshire Democrat. Then there was the transportation bill known as H.R. 22. It was the biggest one in more than a decade. Uh, the Senate is on the verge of adopting its own bill uh, called H.R. 22. This is also known as the Drive Act. And this is something even bigger and more long term. This is to the tune of about $350 billion. Uh, and this morning, by a vote of 65 to 35, the Senate did vote to end debate to, for cloture. Uh, and they're expected to take up this final vote tomorrow. And that is expected to pass. It did pass. They did rename it the FAST Act, Fixing America's Surface Transportation. So Drive Act, FAST Act, just don't drive fast. Immigration reform notoriously did not pass, but there were deficit reductions, and they were bipartisan deficit reductions. So in other words, Obama's claim that after this election, we could have some bipartisanship, there's a normal Democrat in the White House, was true. Biden's making the same claim. Did Trump so ruin the Republican Party that all their incentives will be differently aligned? I don't know. The fact is this mention of epiphany led to mockery. But, you know, the underlying premise is that some policies will get done and they need to get done. And that simply jettisoning Donald Trump will lead to some of these things getting done. I think that's a reasonable supposition. I don't believe Joe Biden thinks that that is all that's needed. I also think Joe Biden was taking into account the fact that reasonable regular voters like this kind of talk. Hey, let's all work together. And I also think he was further taking into account that for some reason, none of his major rivals are emphasizing this popular method of governance. He's got the, hey, let's work together lane. It's usually a pretty crowded lane. Not this year. But when the cognoscenti descends and covers the epiphany comment like it's a joke, or as Think Progress put it, a gaffe, that is wrong. They're applying a slather of cynicism when, in fact, there is some legitimate hope here that is worthy of being nurtured. The Democratic Party once did pretty well, pretty recently, by getting behind the man from hope. And they once backed the guy who promised, yes, we can. And part of the yes, we can is, yes, we can, by working with those other guys. The media, who covers the Democratic Party, might sneer. The other Democratic candidates might not buy it, but the fellow leading in the poll of Democrats and the Democratic voters themselves and history tells a bit of a different story. That said, a Democratic wave in the Senate will offer an epiphany all its own. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. They are students of Finnish purposeful train derailments. It's a rich vein to mine. T.J. Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, thinks the lesson of chili is to season sparingly and have milk on hand. The gist, as long as we're committed to unconstitutional legislation on the state level, I would like to see the Maryland House of Delegates mandate the billeting of soldiers. And maybe there's a loophole where we could allow either cruel or unusual punishment. The Wyoming Safe Word Act of 2019. Umpur depuru depuru, and thanks for listening.